Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we shall be looking at Season 5, Episode 5 of the television show Bones, titled Night at the Bone Museum, which I'm sorry is just the worst title I've ever heard in my life. Um, first things first, I would like to thank Athena Krieger for suggesting this episode. I will admit this is not a series I'm used to watching, and as such I feel I am in danger of angering all of those bone enthusiasts out there with my ignorance on the show. However, I shall do my best. In terms of the format, we shall start with a little look at the background information, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the episode. But before that, we must set the scene. Right. You are a lone guard who is patrolling an area in D.C., late at night. Suddenly, you see something strange hanging on an electric fence. You squint, trying to see what it is, and then shine your torch at it. Your eyes widen, your mouth falls open, and then you accidentally stumble forward into the fence, electrocuting yourself. On the fence, hanging high is a dead body. However, Little do you realise that this is not just anybody. Instead, it is a 3,000-year-old mummy. What is it doing here? Who put it here? Well, an investigation will need to be made. And part of that investigation will lead to a night at the Bone Museum. This episode was released on October 15th, 2009, 
And interestingly, although not in this specific episode, later on during season six, so the season after this one, Arnold Boslow, who previously played Emil Tepp in The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, so two fantastic films, actually appears in the series as the villainous assassin Jacob Brodsky. Also throughout this episode, uh, we see the characters watching The Mummy from 1932, starring Boris Karloff. This is actually quite cool as, well, that was arguably the film to start it all, to start the entire kind of cinematic mummy genre. And just in general, it's always nice to see Boris Karloff, even if it's just in archive footage, as the guy was an absolute legend. I mean, not only did he play the mummy here, but he was also Frankenstein in The Bride of Frankenstein, which, in my opinion, is one of the best horror films ever made. Also, just fun little facts, The Mummy 1932 was the first ever film I reviewed on this very podcast. So it does have a bit of a special place for me, I suppose. In terms of the cast, Emily Deschanel plays Brennan, David Boreanaz plays Booth, Michaela Conlin plays Angela, Tamara Taylor plays Camille, TJ Thine plays Hodgkins, John Frankis Daly plays Lance Sweets, and Carla Gallo plays Daisy Wick. Right, we've now arrived at the historical accuracy section, so as the name would suggest, I'm just going to go over the episode, talking about what the episode gets right and what it gets wrong in terms of historical accuracy. To begin with, when Brannon and Booth first find a body, Booth claims that the body smells of Christmas, and Brennan reveals that this is because it smells of frankincense and myrrh. From this, she deducts that the body must be an ancient Egyptian mummy over 3,000 years old. <laughs> okay. I mean, just a bit of a leap, I guess, but let's start with the positives. In fairness, frankincense and myrrh were indeed used in the embalming process. Both were known for their pleasant fragrance, and so they were used to help with the, the smell of the body, essentially. Berber myrrh was a form of tree sap, and it was often used for the wrapping process of mummification, as it sort of, like, helped the bandages to stick. Also, during the embalming, there was one part where the abdomen, I can never say that word, abdomen, was cut open in order for the internal organs to be removed. Myrrh was often used in order to kind of, like, reseal that uh, cut, as basically it was less damaging than, say, stitching it back up. It needs to be remembered, after all, that the whole point of the mummification process was to preserve the body so that the deceased looked how they had whilst they were alive, as basically it was believed that this was how they would also appear in the afterlife, and so it just kind of makes sense that they would try and do it in the least destructive way possible. However, after, well, over 3,000 years, it's fair to say that the smells of frankincense and myrrh would have faded, and realistically, mummies today tend to just kind of smell musty. They don't really have, like, a scent to them anymore. Also, I'm sorry, but you absolutely cannot determine the age of something by just sniffing it. Frankincense and myrrh are still very much available today, and, and so, I, you know, I feel that Brennan is taking just a had of a leap here. Instead, I mean, I guess it would be possible to date the mummy via carbon dating, say, either by taking a sample of the bone or the, the bandages that wrap it, as 
both of these are organic materials. However, it is worth noting that in order to carbon date something, you have to take a small sample of it. So essentially by taking this method, you don't really have an option other than to cause some damage to the mummy itself. If I were in these detective shoes at this point, the first thing I would do would be to contact a lot of like local museums to see if any bodies had gone missing. Though I would also be quite surprised if that museum wasn't shouting quite loudly about the fact they'd lost a body. After all, that would be quite a big deal. In fairness to the detectives in this series, this is exactly what they do. They call up museums and they try to see if anything's gone missing. So I give them kudos for that, at least. Slightly later on in the episode, they start doing the examination of the body. And Hodgkins reveals that they found flakes of natron inside. He then claims that this was used to dry mummies during the 2nd century BC. I have a feeling that he meant the 2nd millennium BC here, as this would match up better with the 18th dynasty from when this mummy is supposed to come from. However, either way he is correct, though far too restricted with his dates. So basically, Natron was a very common salt that's found in Egypt, usually along the bank of the Nile. There's evidence from about the 4th dynasty onwards until right into the, the Roman period for natron being used to dry bodies during the embalming process. Typically, after the internal organs were removed, minus the heart and the kidneys which remained in the body, the body was submerged in natron for 40 days to dry it out. During the same scene, Daisy then claims that the body must be male because the Egyptians allowed the bodies of women to putrefy for longer to discourage the male priests from having their way with the bodies. Lovely, absolutely lovely, and I will just say there's no archaeological evidence for this whatsoever, and in fact the myth has its origins with the Greek historian Herodotus. He basically writes about this in book two of his histories, however it is worth noting that he also claims that there were ants the size of foxes in India, and that the Nuri tribe could turn into werewolves, so you'd normally need to take his work with just a hint of salt. Basically put, although Herodotus does have his value as he's considered the first ever proper historian, his work needs to be read sceptically. Hodgkins then goes on to claim that no ancient Egyptians were ginger. Again, this is not right. There have been bodies with ginger hair found, most noticeably that of Ramesses II, one of the most famous pharaohs of all time. Later on, they realise that there are several deformities on the mummy. They believe that this is due to inbreeding and therefore suggest that the mummy may be royalty. Then, based on the elongation of the skull and the curve in the forearm, they suddenly realise that it must be from the 18th dynasty. Again, let's start with the positive points here. The Egyptian royal family did inbreed in order to keep the bloodline pure. It is good that they do not claim that this was something that all Egyptians did, as I will admit I was half expecting that, and that would be incorrect. However, as for figuring out that the body is from the 18th dynasty, based on the various deformities, this is not really something that can be done. I suppose it could be argued that the 18th dynasty was the longest Egyptian dynasty, and therefore there was more chance of inbreeding, and therefore more chance of mutations, but even that is very sceptical. During this episode, we find out that the mummy is of a man named Enoch, who legend has it killed his brother so that he could become king. 
Enoch then claimed that his brother died from falling from a horse. The king did not believe him and thus put him to death. This story is made up for this film. Later still, when they have found out where the mummy originally came from and also its sarcophagus, Brannan and the curator of one of the museums talks about how there was no toe differentiation in Egyptian art until well after the 18th dynasty. They go on to claim that this is especially true when it comes to women. I'm going to guess they are referring to just drawings here as there certainly were toes on many of the statues from ancient Egypt. However, even here it's not really correct. It is fair to say that in the majority of Egyptian drawings only the big toe is shown, but this is more because the drawings are two-dimensional and it just so happens that the big toe is all that can be seen in this circumstance. There are in fact some examples where toes can be seen in Egyptian art from the 18th dynasty. For instance, in the tomb chapel of Nebamun, there are two instances where we see individual toes on two different people. One of these is a man and the other one is a woman, so basically put the statement here is just not correct. Around about the 14 minute mark in this episode, we see the coffin of Enoch. On the upside, the coffin here is referred to as just that, a coffin. This may seem like quite a small thing, but it is nice that they have not incorrectly referred to it as a sarcophagus, as, to be honest with you, that happens more times than not. However, Enoch was supposed to be a prince, not a king, and so I'm not sure why his coffin has a royal beard on it, as that was only reserved for the pharaoh. Also, the back of the coffin here is clearly made from modern wood. Further, the hieroglyphs on the coffin are complete nonsense. Later still, it is revealed that the Egyptian government has loaned the mummy to the museum on the agreement that no invasive procedures are done on the mummy. This would be a very reasonable request, though also kind of pointless as invasive procedures are not really done on mummies anymore. Rather than unwrapping them, generally CAT scans are now performed if anything at all. Although, I guess in fairness, in this film they do just like, literally dive into this mummy and start tearing it apart at points. I mean, they literally remove its head at one point. So maybe the Egyptian government, you know, could be justified by requesting this? In general though, um, CAT scans are normally used instead now because they're just far less damaging to the body, and because also undeniably there are some ethical issues with unwrapping mummies and digging around in their insides. Shocking, I know. During this episode, the character of Angela makes several claims, all of which are incorrect. Firstly, she says that the brain was ripped out through the nose during mummification and placed in a canopic jar. On the upside, the brain was removed from the nose, however, to do this they would not rip it out. Instead, the bone in the nose was broken to allow a metal rod to be inserted. The brain was then stirred and mixed with water. This would allow for it to be poured out. The brain was also not placed in a canopic jar, but instead it was simply discarded. Later, Angela claims that the canopic jars were about as important to the ancient Egyptians as Tupperware are to us. This could not be more incorrect. A lot of care and attention went into canopic jars, and typically their lids and often the jars themselves were made to resemble the sons of Horus. The internal organs were placed in these jars and often mixed with natron to preserve them. 
It was then the job of these four gods to protect the internal organs, as the deceased needed them in the afterlife. Basically put, they were of huge religious significance, and thus were just a tad more important than Tupperware. Finally, in the body in the film, they find the remnants of mammal bones, woad, and Kermes insects. Angela claims that mammal bones were used to make white paint in ancient Egypt. Kermes insects were made to make red paint, and woad made indigo. So let's go over these one at a time. White paint in ancient Egypt was typically normally made from either calcium carbonate, so chalk, or calcium sulfate, so gypsum. There is some inconclusive evidence for cuttlefish bone and powdered shell being used in the Third Intermediate Period, which came well after the 18th Dynasty, by the way. However, this only comes from the word of one Egyptologist from the 60s, and has never been verified by anyone else. So, there is no evidence whatsoever for mammal bone being used to make white paint. Now let's move on to the red. Red was normally made from red ochre. Once again, there is no evidence whatsoever that red was made from any kind of insect. Finally, we have indigo, which falls somewhere between blue and purple. In terms of purple, this did not really exist in ancient Egypt, though in the 22nd dynasty there is some evidence of yellow and red pigments being used together. As already stated, red was made from red ochre, and yellow was made from yellow ochre, so no woad whatsoever. As for blue, that was typically made by heating silica and copper alloy together as well as adding an alkali such as potash or natron, so once again, no woad here either. Basically, damn it Angela, stop spreading misinformation. Finally, at one point, Brennan claims that everything was removed from the chest of mummies, and that the only thing they put in were powdered perfumes. In fairness, perfumes are commonly discovered in mummies. However, the heart and kidneys were also left in the body. Further, things like sawdust and bandages were used to pack the body to give it back its shape. Basically put, in terms of historical accuracy, this episode is almost entirely wrong and only gets one or two bits incidentally correct. It is fair to say that natron was used to dry out the bodies during the embalming process, and it is true that frankincense and myrrh were used in mummification. But outside of that, we have a coffin with a wooden back and nonsense hieroglyphs. We have completely incorrect information on paint colours. And we have claims that canopic jars were completely unimportant to the ancient Egyptians, which is nonsense. Basically, this episode is no more accurate than any of the mummy movies that I normally review. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. Here I shall just talk about the parts that I liked, the parts that I disliked, and then rate the episode out of 10. First things first, although a little silly, the premise for this episode is at least interesting and does raise a lot of questions. I was legitimately interested to see how an ancient Egyptian mummy ended up being attached to an electric fence in the middle of DC. Further, throughout the episode, there are some parts that, although ridiculous, are admittedly funny. For a start, when the investigators first see the mummy attached to the fence, 
They are unfazed by this and just continue to talk about their personal lives, basically. Not only is this a little humorous, but does also indicate to anyone who has not seen this show before that these are people who are used to seeing dead bodies, and so this is not a shock to them anymore. In another part, Angela is casually cutting up a brain into sections when Lance Sweet comes in. Lance makes a quip about the brain looking like Carpaccio. It is then revealed that this is the brain of Dr. Caswell, the woman who has been murdered in this episode. This did make me audibly laugh. It was also made funnier by the fact that you never find out why Angela is cutting up this brain. I mean, I'm not an investigator, but what on earth was she supposed to be doing here? I mean, she was hardly going to be learning about the murderer by cutting up the brain. Maybe I'm missing something, I don't know. I also like that throughout the episode, the characters are watching the Boris Karloff mummy movie from 1932. This was a nice little nod to one of the most important mummy movies ever made. And as stated earlier, the film that arguably started the whole mummy movie cinematic genre. In general, it's just nice to see that the film is being remembered. On the downside, however, there is a lot of jumping to conclusions in this episode. I have spoken about plenty of these already. For instance, Brennan knowing that the mummy is over 3,000 years old by just sniffing it. Still can't get over how ridiculous that is. Though I will admit it is, it is funny. I, I do also feel that it is quite lazy. Also, although I'd normally try not to let the historical accuracy section affect the review section of these episodes, the fact that there were a lot of blatant made-up facts during this episode did stop my enjoyment a little. Normally, I'm just dealing with mummy movies, and I do not feel anyone's really taking the history presented in them seriously. Or at least not to any major degree, anyway. When we get into this crime drama area, however, I do feel that shifts a little, and so there are some people who start to believe a little more what they are seeing on screen. I'm not saying that these shows need to be 100% accurate by any means. They are still entertainment after all, but I do feel they need to put a little bit more effort into this area. At the end of the day, this episode is every bit as inaccurate as the mummy movies I normally review. Finally, although not terrible by any means, I did feel that some of the acting was a bit wooden here. For instance, when Dr. Caswell is found dead, even the people who knew her seemed fairly unupset by her death. I suppose that this was partly done as it made everyone look a little bit suspicious. After all, at the end of the day, the viewer is naturally going to be trying to figure out who the killer is. But I felt at least some of the characters could have been a little bit more upset. In terms of the reviews for this episode, they were pretty good to be honest. It is not rated on Rotten Tomatoes, though season 5 as a whole has an audience score of 81%. However, on IMDb, this episode has a 7.9 out of 10. Generally, the plot is seen as quite colourful, however, some people did question some of the character motivation and the fact that Brennan starts going out with the character of Hacker. Considering that I have not mentioned this subplot at all, I think that tells you all you need to know about my thoughts on this. I literally have none. Though it is fair to say that I am not a regular viewer of this show, and so the whole plot probably wasn't aimed at me. In terms of myself, 
I would give this episode a 5.5 out of 10. By no means was it terrible, but I feel if I had not been reviewing it, it would have just been kind of on in the background whilst I was doing other things. This is not necessarily a bad thing, sometimes that's just the kind of program you need, but it also means that by its very nature, for me at least, it is never going to get much more than that. Thank you very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have, why not consider subscribing, liking, leaving a comment, and join me next week for an episode that I'm actually quite excited for. We shall be going back in time to the late 1800s and early 1900s to look at some of the very early Silent Mummy films of that era. These are very much the seeds that originally led to The Mummy 1932 the first true mummy movie. These are the films that came out before the tropes that now litter the genre. And they come from a time where attitudes were different from today. As such, I feel this could be an incredibly interesting episode. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you all have a really good week. And I hope to see you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.